Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we have Keith Gable, who's a three-time Paralympian, a two-time Paralympic medalist, one silver, one bronze. We might be talking to him because he might be wanting to complete that set. A 2019 gold medalist in the World Championships, 2015 X Games gold medalist. I was also nominated for an ESPY as the best male athlete with a disability. Keith, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, brother. Stoked to be here. This is awesome. It's so cool. I mean, you've been around for a while. I see the silver and the bronze. Are you sticking around to try to get a gold in uh, Cortina? Is that what we're looking at right now? Yeah, man, I I can honestly say I wasn't happy with my my results for the first time ever uh, when we competed in Beijing and had to complete that set. I was going for it in Beijing. I got two seventh places, which to me was just not quite where I wanted to be, obviously. Um, and really, I only had myself to blame. And so... As you know, uh, when you go through that media corral, everybody goes, what's next? What's next? And in my head, I'm like, I'm just planning for, I've just been planning for today. I, I last four years has been a buildup to today. I have no idea. Uh, so my wife and I, we took a little bit of time, went and spent some time on a beach in Costa Rica for a couple of weeks with the kiddo and um, really talked about the future and kind of what what we wanted to do, what I wanted to do. And I just, I'm not ready to hang it up yet. I'm still competitive at heart. I'm still competitive uh, on, on snow and, you know, I've been, I've, I'm training, I'm training super hard. I've got a new fire lit, uh, lit within me that uh, I haven't had in a long time. So I'm super stoked for this next quad, you know? That's awesome. Especially at the end of your career, where does that come from that fire? And where does that come from? And then you also have to, if you don't mind, explain what the sports that you do, snowboard cross and bank slalom are. Sure. Please. So uh, first question, where does that fire come from? I don't know. I have always been super competitive. I'm somebody who, you know, I can't say I'm 100% self-made. I don't think anybody is. It takes a village in a sense. Um, everything from financially to coaching to uh, uh, opportunities, whether it's sharing your story or training. Um, so, but on the other end of that spectrum, I am self-made. I came from literally nothing, a super, uh, uh, poverty stricken family with middle child of five, um, lived with my mom for the first 12 years of my life and we were homeless and all of that. And so I saw what rock bottom looked like at a very early age. And, uh, I just don't ever want to be there. And so I think that, in and of itself has kind of lit this fire within me my whole life to just achieve, 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 push, 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 be the best I can be at whatever I am doing. And so I guess that's where the fire came from that. And my dad always told me, you know, um, if you're going to do anything, it's worth doing right. And so uh, I, I would say that's probably where the fire comes from. Um, the second question, my sports are, you know, border cross and bank solemn. I'm a snowboarder. So the best way to describe bank slalom is 
think of like a slalom course, but with bank turns, you know, and we're essentially doing the same thing a slalom skier would, but we utilize banks to really generate speed, you know, and just like a slalom skier, the goal is to turn, but to generate speed from top to bottom, never scrubbing any of it off if you can avoid it. Um, pretty simple, basic, uh, you against the clock, um, fastest time wins. And then you've got border cross, which is by far my favorite. Uh, I really like getting in the gates next to people. Uh, think of motocross racing, but on snow um, and on snowboard. So we have a course that we race down. It's got big berms. It's got whoops. It's got jumps. It's got pretty much any feature you would see on the mountain, but in a course. And so we have a time trial to kind of seat you into brackets. And then from there you race um, either head to head, depending on the track, or you race up to three other people. Um, first one of the bottom wins. So you advance, advance, advance till you get to that gold medal round, or we call it the big final. Um, if you don't make the big final, you're in six through 10 um, slots, then you're in the small final. So again, first one of the bottom, you're racing. It's, you know, there's a little bit of rubbing once in a while. If you've ever seen Days of Thunder, he didn't push you, he didn't hit you, he didn't bump you. He rubbed you, uh, Robin's <laughs> racing, you know, so we're, we're, you know, right next to each other, hitting jumps and just kind of sending it. It's kind of like the NASCAR, the snowboarding world. What has there been an evolution in that? So like back in 2014, right. That was the first snow, the first time that snowboard was in the Paralympics, but that was, was that border cross, but it was just one of you on the course at a time. So yeah, in 2014, we were calling it border cross because it essentially was a border cross course. It had all the features you would see in a border cross course. However, we were racing time trial. Um, excuse me, there wasn't enough data to really give us the opportunity to race um, head to head or side by side. We call it uh, shoulder to shoulder, um, let alone four four across we had actually cut out, well, the sport had cut out um, a couple different categories and just had it as lower limb impairment. So there was no, um, it was AKs versus BKs versus CP versus MS. We were all in the same, we we're all in the same category, which in my opinion was a bit unfair for those that had a little bit more uh, limitations. So, or more impairment, if you will. So that was that was one thing, trying to get the data for the IPC so that we could expand the sport down the road. Um, we were only allowed to do time trial. We had done exhibition races at World Championship to prove that we could race head-to-head -head or side-by-side -side or whatever you want to call it. We had done the exhibition race at X Games in 2012, again, another kind of proving ground. And um, as I think you would probably remember, that's the gnarliest course out there, period um big old jumps so we had it in us but the, the raw data wasn't there yet um and it was only border cross so we were calling it border cross but it really was just a time trial event uh, and no head-to-head -head racing but uh now i mean we've we've grown into two different disciplines potentially three uh we'll see how it goes at this world champs for numbers uh and multiple categories which were constant what would the third one be so uh, dual bank slalom. So essentially a bank slalom course that matches and you race either side and then you switch and you race the other side. So 
Um, it's essentially a head to head match, but two people on essentially separate courses that are mirroring each other. It's pretty cool to watch. We did it at the last world championships, uh, last year in Norway. And, uh, it's really exciting. It, it makes for some really eventful racing. It's interesting because you talk about creating the data and you talk about, you know, presenting that to the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee. The snowboarders have been responsible for getting the game, getting their sport into the games. I mean, you guys grew organically from a group that that we really felt responsible for that sport. I mean, you guys pushed it forward to a point where then you could step into the Paralympics. What does that mean as a competitor and as a supporter? I mean, it, it seems like there's this family sort of aspect, but yet you're going head to head with those people. Yeah, I mean, so I can't speak for the Alpine side. I, I'm not an Alpine racer, but I know on the snowboard side, there is a ton of camaraderie. If you're not on the podium, you're cheering for everybody else. Uh, and it's just that simple. Uh, a lot of us have been around for a long time. You know, I'm fortunate to be one of the last, myself and Evan Strong are actually the last two from the very beginning. Um, Evan's taken a year off here and there, you know, where I've muscle through injuries and, and my, my own, uh, mental, uh, capacity, I guess you could say I've muscled through that to be able to compete every season since I've started, but, uh, to see it grow, I mean, you really do. I, I mean, it, it feels like it's kind of like your child, you know, and, and you're right there. It was a small group. I think the, the first sanctioned world cup was my first competition. And that was actually held by the world snowboard federation. Um, it was kind of a smaller organization that kind of does some stuff in conjunction with FIS, but, uh, they're much smaller and we got a chance to compete under them, essentially sanctioning us. And there were 17 of us. And I think a couple of them were mono skiers at the time too. I mean, I, Robbie Drugan showed up, I believe, and another another guy from Idaho, John a blank at the moment. But uh, there were a couple mono skiers helping us just fill those numbers and um, to see it grow in just a couple of years from 17 people from around the world to actually having enough uh, uh, countries, um, both men and women, and and um, impairment. Uh, categories to actually push it into the games was crazy and to see where it's grown to today it's like like I said it just kind of feels like it's it's our baby and oh man it makes me it makes me proud but it, I also feel like there's a ton of work to be done still you know and, um I work I work tirelessly on on the on the political side advocating for the athletes for our rights for you know rules and and all that stuff, because I just want to see it be around long after I'm gone. You mentioned Evan Strong. You, Evan, and Mike Shea at the first games were on the podium. So all three Americans, one, two, three. You getting to see it on the big stage. What was it like to see it on the big stage, but then also go and and, and win? on the big stage and have have your your closest teammates the people who help you get to the help the sport get to this point what was that like and i mean every time i get a chance to talk about it i always get chills uh 
you know, it's one of those things like you never want to lose a race, obviously, but if you're going to lose, you kind of hope it's to a teammate at the end of the day. At least I do. Um, I want to see American flags all the way around. So it was cool. It was something that we, we had, you know, swept the podium a few times in world cups leading up to that. And so it was something that, uh, we knew it was possible, but it wasn't something that we really talked about or like, let's go sweep it or anything like that. It was just how it shook out. And then when we all realized um, at the at the podium ceremony, it was like three flags went up, you know, and for a Russian color guard saluting American flags. And, and there's I have a picture. I posted it a little while back because it just like came up in my memories on my phone. And I was like, oh, I got to post this because it's something that especially in this day and age politically, like you would never see or expect to see. And so, I don't know, just a super, super big, like really, really proud moment, you know? Um, I mean, I get kind of choked up and lost for words when I, when I think about it, cause it was so cool. It was just something that we made history in multiple ways that day. You really did. And it was such an amazing start. What was it like? What have you seen being in three Paralympic Games? Because that was the first. And that's where you said you were really time trialing. But then in the snowboard, you've been able to go like Pyeongchang. Was it dual in Pyeongchang, the snowboard? And then what was the situation in Beijing? Are you getting at the Paralympic Games? Are you getting to have four of you on a course at the same time, which I'd imagine for you is is the ultimate is what you're supposed to do right yeah exactly i think border cross to me is four across at least um, x games you have six so i mean a minimum of four is kind of to me the the basic standard so yeah pyeongchang we raced head to head and that was crazy day i mean we had gate malfunctions and all kinds of stuff so to add that to racing side by side with people and the sun going down and no lights to accommodate the sun going down. We weren't prepared. We were never supposed to be racing in the dark. So we had to get it done. Um, it's crazy, you know, and, and head to head, you have more when you, when you're just racing two on a course for border cross, you have more runs because you have to get through the brackets. So uh, say you bracket out top, I don't know, 24, say 16, it's easier numbers, right? I mean, that's four runs to the gold medal round. Um, but if you're bracketing out, say, the top 16 and you're going head to head, well, that's eight runs um, on top of your two time trials to get you to get you seated. So, I mean, you're taking 10 laps down a minute plus course that um, takes every bit out of you every single lap. So, uh, it's, it's definitely different strategically, but it's also, you know, it's, it's single elimination. So it's do or die each round. You got to get through, you got to get through, you got to get through. So, um, to see it grow to where it's supposed to be, it's a huge point of pride for me. Um, when I see that, uh, we have races where it's kind of back to head to head because a course can't accommodate. In my personal opinion, I would say that place should not be hosting a border cross event. Um, and I don't mean to be, you know, um, kind of hard headed about it, but that's what the sport is. It is for a cross. You don't see in the able-bodied world, you don't see them racing head to head once in a while. It's for a cross. And if a, and if a venue can't accommodate, they don't host. 
And so that's kind of like a big point of pride is we've pushed it to a point where it's where it's supposed to be. So let's keep it going. You know, I always feel like if we're taking step backs, those are just steps back sometimes. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Beijing, we, we did get to race four across and most of the time it is four across very rarely is it a head to head race versus four across. And, and it's just so much more exciting. You know, you can, I got the whole shot in every one of my heats at Beijing and I ended up getting put into the small final because down below, I made a mistake and ended up getting passed. So that's that's kind of the fun thing about it is it's really anyone's race until that finish line is crossed. It's not a guaranteed, oh, these two guys are going to move on. It's like really anybody can catch up. All it takes is one little mistake. What's your training like? I mean, I think both on snow and off snow because it's the sprint. You talk about the whole shot, right? That's, that's your start where you're pulling – on the on the bars to get out and if you get the whole shot you are you're in that prime position it's harder for people to pass you that's obviously one part of your of your training has to be that upper body part but then there's the boarding part and then you talk about the endurance of doing multiple runs and it gets more and more important as you get further along in those runs. So you've got to be at your best when you're potentially most tired. How do you train for that? We train year round. Any, I think any professional athlete really does. You might get a little bit of downtime here and there, but my whole life is, is surrounded by activity. Yeah. I'm a very active person. I don't sit still for a very long period of time anyway. So um, you know, in the summer it's, it's primarily mountain biking. I do everything from, you know, climbing uphill on my mountain bike to, um, uh, riding a lot of downhill. That's very similar to what we do on, especially in border cross. Um, and it's, it's much higher risk. So you got to be that much more precise on a mountain bike. Um, and then once, once the snow starts flying and, and I can't have, uh, you know, the rubber on the trails, I'm riding a stationary bike. So that covers a lot of my cardio. Um, I train generally, um, especially outside of this season, four to five days a week doing jujitsu. Um, you want to talk about cardio, roll around for an hour with other grown, grown people, whether it's men or women in or out of a gi and, and put the puzzle together while they're cutting your oxygen supply or trying to break your arm. I mean, talk about cardio intensive. Um, plus, putting puzzles together while someone's trying to pop your head off. I mean, it makes everything in life, including standing in a start gate at the games seem, uh, not so, not so serious, I guess. Or, you know, I don't know. It takes a lot of pressure off to be honest. Um, and then I do a lot of, a lot of kettlebell workouts. I use a TRX. I do a lot of balance stuff. I think it's really important to be able to, um, separate your lower body from your upper body you know i do the voodoo board while i juggle and like just random weird things that like really make make both parts of the brain have to think um but you're right you know we have to have upper body strength we have to have a really strong core and then our our legs have to be fit and then on top of all that you got to be cardio intensive you got to be ready to go because it's a sprint i mean it's a one minute sprint effectively but it's a one minute sprint and then you take a chairlift up and then, or maybe, maybe you take a snowmobile up depending upon the, the venue, but then you have to get right back at it. 
So it's that sprint, then it's another sprint, then it's another sprint. So it's the anaerobic and the aerobic all at the same time. And you mentioned the the the, the sense of of the adrenaline, but also the danger. And that one little move, this is your riding mountain bike downhill, can can be can be dire, right? I mean, can be your race, can be, but also can be potential injury. I mean, some of the jumps you guys are going off of are are big jumps where battling back and forth, rubbing, that can be really, really challenging. Is the the mental side is, is it the jujitsu that really is the mental side of the competition for you? So you're right. I mean, hitting big jumps can be catastrophic, regardless of what you're piloting, whether it be skis or snowboard or mountain bike, whatever, Um, especially when you throw other aspects of, say, pressure that you're putting on yourself or someone else has put on you, or maybe there's people right next to you. Um, So, yeah, it can definitely be very dangerous, very catastrophic um, if things don't go your way. Um, But the mental side of it, you know, years ago, I started, you know, meditating and doing yoga and all that stuff because I was just, I was burnt out. I was over it. I didn't want to do it anymore. And on top of that, I was tired of feeling so stressed from everything. Um, and that just wears on you. I mean, you were, you, you were a career competitor, you know, um, it can really, that can be what makes or breaks a season or a race for someone, um, even a career sometimes. So, I had, you know, uh, a coach of mine, Maya Wheeler, he was, he's been a big mentor of mine and he was always big into sports psych world and all of that. And, and um, when he was coaching us, that was one of his big things was, you know, we can, we can make you a well-oiled machine, but if the computer chips aren't firing how they're supposed to be, you know, you're, it's going to all fall apart when it, when it matters most. And so he started suggesting certain types of meditation, certain types of yoga. And then, you know, I just took it to the next level, um, tons of breath work, all of that. And then getting into jujitsu later on, it was something, you know, I wrestled in high school and wasn't a great wrestler or anything, but I always liked it. And it was something that I had pushed against to do the whole jujitsu thing um, primarily because it is dangerous. It's a combat sport. You can get hurt any given day of the week. Um, But it's also like very um, adrenaline intensive and very cardio intensive. And I had a feeling I would kind of get hooked on it, which I did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it really has in some ways kind of humbled me um, in a way that nothing else has ever been able to, because you realize like on any given day, you know, you might think you're bad, but there's always someone who's way better, you know? Um, and, and honestly, I mean, literally someone putting a choke on you and you've got to, you've got to like calm everything down and try to do your best to breathe through it and figure out how to get out of that choke before you, you know, black out essentially, it's it's a puzzle and it's it's something that like it really takes a lot of stress out of the rest of life it makes everything seem less stressful and um then the final piece of it is is if you can't get out you've got to tap and nothing feels worse than having to tap to someone especially if like well I don't think that person's really better than me. Like I shouldn't have had to tap to them, but they caught me and it's so humbling. And, you know, there's moments where you get frustrated and you just have to swallow your pride and realize like, 
you're going to get some, you're getting, some people are going to get you, you know, and, and you're going to win some, you're going to lose some kind of deal. And, um, it really does take a lot of stress out of everything else in life. Cause it's the most stressful thing I put myself through guaranteed. Have you blacked out? Cause, cause that's, I mean, I've heard people like MMA people talk about the idea of like, you do get choked out and it's not, it's not that you're dying, but you get choked out, you black out and you, and you come back, which to the layperson sounds absolutely crazy <laughs> have you gone to that point uh i've never gotten completely choked out i'm smart enough to tap um i have seen spots and i and i will push certain i you know i push certain chokes especially like if you have an arm bar or something i'll tap immediately or if you have a leg lock i've only got one good ankle i've only got one ankle so um and i've only got one halfway okay knee so like you got a leg lock or an ankle lock on me, I'm tapping immediately, even before you can wrench on it, because I don't, I cannot afford to get, have things just torn and busted. So um, same with shoulder locks and that kind of stuff, but chokes, I have a buddy who's a, actually a buddy who taught me into it, finally talked me into doing jujitsu, got us a private um, here at Aspen MMA. Um, and he, I told him, no, 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 no. And he's like, I got us a private, you're coming. Um, did it, fell in love with it, asked him if the if the professor was like legit. And he was like, that guy's legit. He knows way more than he leads on and he'll teach you all the ways. But my buddy Shane, what he taught me was you can actually build somewhat of a tolerance to chokes. You just, I mean, it comes with time, people cutting your carotid arteries and your oxygen supply over time. So you can push it. There is a fine line, you know, you'll start to see the spots and if you can get out, you can get out. If you can't, you better tap. But um, I've never been fully choked out. I Like I said, there's only been one or two where I was like, oh, crap, they're actually choking. I'm seeing spots right now. And I had to tap immediately. Um, but generally, you can kind of feel it happening and you realize what's going on and realize you're probably not going to get out. So you just get out, you know, let me go kind of thing. Uh, but I try to build that tolerance a little bit to it. I don't know. Uh, how true that is, to be honest. So anybody out there listening, don't take advice from me on this because I don't know if you can actually build a tolerance. It's just what Shane told me. And I feel like over time, I've been able to really flex that neck and keep, this is the move really, take away, take away the neck completely. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, there's a little bit. I've never been choked out though. It's cool to see the evolution for you, right? And the evolution in your training where jujitsu becomes a part of it, where meditation becomes a part of it. What did snowboarding mean to you after losing your foot? Because that had to be pretty traumatic for you, right? And you were a snowboarder before too. Yeah, so, I mean, snowboarding is everything. It's it's my church. I always say this, anybody who's ever heard me speak in the last 12 years, um, and I said it even before, then where are you going to get closer to God than 10 to 12,000 feet up in the mountains? in the wilderness, being one with nature, expressing yourself, who's to stop you. You hear the pow hands out there, right? Like it's church. Um, and it really is. It's what saved my life multiple times. When I went and lived with my dad, uh, when I was 12, I started on skis. He literally picked me up from the airport and took me straight to Deer Valley, um, put skis on my feet that day. He didn't know what to do with this rambunctious, no, uh, no holds barred kid that had no, no, um, 
structure and a ton of energy. He's like, I don't know what to do with this kid. So he put skis on my feet. Um, and I, you know, I instantly fell in love with it. And then later I switched to snowboarding and it's just always been kind of like my one outlet. Um, and so going over like the amputation thing, um, you know, I was involved in an industrial accident and all this crazy stuff happened that led up to um, potentially partial limb salvage of my foot or just kind of amputation. And so when I was in there talking to the doctors, they were like, you know, you got those two options. Those are what it's what it looks like. And I said, all right, well, how long till I can snowboard again? That was literally the question. It's what kind of dictated everything. And my doctor said, you know, if we try the partial limb salvage, you know, I had three dead toes and I was, and I was headed towards gangrene. Um, they said, you know, if you do that, you're looking at maybe if ever 10 years from now, but you're going to be living a very painful life. Like, you know, I six surgeries down the road. If everything doesn't work, we're going to have to amputate anyway. And that's if gangrene hasn't set in. So we could end up chasing that to your hip if it doesn't kill you. So I said, all right, how long so I can snowboard if we just, you know, cut to the chase and amputate. And uh, this is 2005. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit old. I'm getting up in there. Uh, to our young listeners, um, 2005, you know, it's the height, the height of the Iraq war. So, you know, the government's dumping a ton of technology into lower limb uh, uh, prosthetics. And I would say that below the knee amputees, we're kind of at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to technology. And, you know, we, in all reality, we can get away with walking on a peg if we have to. Um so technology up until that point wasn't great. Um, and so my doctor, he was telling me, you know, technology is awesome these days. Um, you've got a great attitude. You're healthy. I could see you living a normal life with a prosthetic no longer than three years. You'll be back to snowboarding. You'll be back to doing whatever you did before, but it'll be the prosthetic. I was like, okay, it's July now. Opening days in October. You know, Brighton Resort back when they opened on Halloween day. Uh, like about three months. It's like, man, whatever's going to make you make the right decision. You know, they wanted me to amputate, but I was an adult and they couldn't just say, hey, you should chop this off. They had to kind of weigh the options for me. Who else was involved in that that decision? Were you just making it yourself? Yeah, just me and my doctor. Um, really? Yeah, so I had an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. James Morgan. He just retired uh, this time last year. Um, but he was one of the few who was doing the Ertl procedure um, outside of the military, which is where they fuse the tib-fib together. Um, and so since I was just a foot injury, they had, you know, at the time, in order to fit, fit decent technology under me, they had to take me up about mid-calf. Um, but parts of my foot were still salvageable. So they actually did my Ertl procedure with my heel bone. So they used my heel bone and kind of, fused those two together and then took my Achilles tendon and padded that um, because that was still good. And so, you know, I still have original parts from my original foot in my leg. It's just up quite a bit higher. That is, And so three months, did you make it? Did you make it for opening day? Yeah, it was crazy. I went out there and it's so funny, man. Like I look back at that day and like, so I was telling everybody that had aesthetic ears, I was like, I'm going to snowboard, blah, blah, blah. Like I just had this amputation because they went in and cut it, cut it off like less than a week later. Right. And I'm telling everybody, my dad's like, yeah, man, that's, that's a cool goal, but don't be bummed if it doesn't happen. I'm like, I can't hear that. 
and then other friends are like man that's cool man like okay like they're you know they're doing one of these not really wanting to not really wanting to like they want to support that's about it um so we get up it's so funny you know we get up to to brighton resort and i just i had one of those temporary new cool uh parking passes that uh got you right up to the front <laughs> and so um we get out there and I'm like, I'm super stoked. Like I just pulled right up to the, to the snowbank and parked and pulled out my snowboard and like, dude, my heart started beating. And, and like, I can start, I start to feel nervous even talking about it with you. Cause like, it's just pumping, you know? And I'm just like, Oh my God, what if, what if everybody who said this wasn't going to happen? What if they're right? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, I, what do I do? And, and there was a moment where like, I literally must've just stopped because everybody's like, is he good? And I was like in my own world. And then I kind of came back and I realized where I was. And I was like, dude, doesn't matter if I can snowboard, look where we are today. I taught myself how to walk with no, no physical therapy or rehab. Um, in just a couple of weeks, I was back to driving a manual car, which was like, outside of snowboarding it was my car that was everything and and which leg are you missing i'm missing my left right so that's your clutch yeah leg. right okay turned up a couple clutches in my day <laughs> but um yeah i mean everything kind of hit all at once and came full circle and i realized like it doesn't even matter if i can shred like look at what i've accomplished to get to this point i got off the pain meds you know, uh, I went through two different sessions of, of, um, of what do you call it? Withdrawals. You know, the first, so I was on a ton of pain meds when this all happened. Um, uh, and the first week I quit taking my morning meds, morning and afternoon. Um, and I went through 48 hours worth of withdrawals. The next week I quit taking my evening and night meds and I went through another 72 hours worth of withdrawals. And after that, I was able to kind of start putting on weight and like eating and drinking again, holding down food. Um, and I was actually starting to get sleep. And so we we're kind of off to the races of getting healed up. For what the are the withdrawals like? What, is, what do you mean? They're terrible. So I was on opiates. I was on Oxycontin, Percocet. I was on um, Valium. They had me on morphine. Uh, I mean, they had me on everything. And I mean, it's pretty much just synthetic heroin at that point. Um, but they were terrible. I mean, you're hungry, but you can't eat. You're thirsty, but you can't drink. You're tired, but you can't sleep. And all the while your brain's like, just take the pill. Just take the pill. The pain will go away for maybe an hour or two, but at least you won't be in pain. Just take the pill. You won't be puking. You won't be cold sweating, all this other stuff. And so, I mean, they're terrible. I would not wish that on my worst enemy, to be honest with you. Like, it is bad. And did you know how long it would take to go through the, you said 48 hours and then 72 hours the second time, which if you know, you kind of go, okay, can I gut it out for 48 hours? Maybe I can gut it out for 48 hours. Can I gut it out for 72? Maybe I can do that. But it, But this is that indeterminate finish line though too right you never know when you're done absolutely and i wasn't expecting the withdrawals the second time um the first time i was like okay this might be rough like i kind of read up on it my doctors had mentioned it to me because the pain actually got worse after the amputation and they were like we think your body's kind of addicted to this substance it's saying send send help essentially and so creating the pain the 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 pain sensors they're going crazy so send help to get the chemical kind of deal um and so i expected it the first time the second time i really didn't 
Um, and I, so I flushed um, 580 OxyContin 80s, which I probably messed up an entire water system doing that. I didn't realize at the time what I, I just dumped them down the toilet. Um, but it, I mean, that's an absurd amount of, of OxyContin for anybody, let alone, you know, a 20, 20 year old, 21 year old, whatever. Um, yeah, it's a street value too, right? I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah, crazy, right? Um, but honestly, look, I'll die with a clean conscience knowing I didn't give those to anybody. <laughs> That's fine with me. But uh, yeah, I mean, could you imagine? So generally speaking, you know, a Percocet 10 is a tenth of what an 80 is, if that gives you an idea of how strong these pills are. Uh, at least that's how it was explained to me. I'm no pharmacist or anything, but uh, I mean, I flushed them and there was, there was about 48 hours in. I was, I wish I hadn't, to be honest. And I'm really glad I did now because if they had been in my position, I can't guarantee I would have made it through that, that next 24 hours. Cause it was, it was just so painful. I mean, I was convulsing at times and um you know, it's just bad. It's just really, really Did bad. You have to lock yourself up too. Where you just locked in, so you couldn't go out. You couldn't find more pills or whatever. Because I mean, oxy is so opioids are so addictive, right? They I mean, really it's amazing. Are. And this was during that whole opioid crisis that we all now look back on. Um, you know, fifteen years later, going, "Holy crap." Um, and so it was during that time, you know, I lived in Hiram, Utah. So I lived in a small town kind of out in the middle of nowhere, just outside of Logan. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like I could just, I'm from Ogden. So it's not like I could just go down to 25th street and find, find somebody to be honest. And the second one, I like, I couldn't really get out of my house without puking anyway. I couldn't stand up without getting dizzy. Um, you know, it was so, I lived by myself, so that was kind of a good thing. Um, yeah, it wasn't like I had a whole lot of options anyway. Um, granted, like I said, if I would have had, if I would have had them in my possession, I probably would have taken them. You know, but it was that that thought of let's let's we're getting back on a snowboard. We're going to be able to go back to church. That really that was like the one little gem I was holding on to, and it was like one thing I was like, it doesn't matter what happens if I live through this. Uh, at that time, I thought I was dying. Um, I felt like I was dying. I didn't know you don't actually die from um, withdrawals from opium or opioids. But I mean, I felt like I was dying. And I was just what I was holding on to. I was like, if I can get through this, I'll be, be able to snowboard again. If I can snowboard, I can live. Um, and that that little gem, that little thought of like, getting back to the mountain, you know, maybe just making one slash of pow, just anything, riding through the trees, um, even just being at the top of the world. Like that's one of those things that just the thought of it was it was enough for me to kind of just hold on and, and you know, um, say my prayers, if you will, and, and get through it. But it is that too, isn't it? That what's the story that you tell yourself when things are really difficult how do you keep going right i mean yeah i mean you look back on it and like we all go through stuff and it's always it's a it's a series of moments and a series of stories and things can be better or worse just based on your narrative of how things are going down um 
And it was, I literally was just telling myself over and over and over, like snowboarding, it's coming, it's coming. And that was like the little, I guess the little story, the little narrative I was, I had to tell myself. And then getting back on a, on a leg was, was a challenge in and of itself, you know, being patient and making sure my leg healed properly. And then um, getting into a prosthetic finally, and like being able to like teach myself how to bear weight on it and move from, you know, doing the whole crutching while walking around to ditching one crutch and realizing that's just as, just as much of a hindrance as two. So learning to limp and just deal with the pain, you know, and I, I just realized it's like, well, it's painful to walk on this, but it was way more painful to get my foot crushed. You know, <laughs> that was the narrative. It was like snowboarding, snowboarding. It's right around the corner. We're going to go snowboarding. What's the story that you tell yourself in the start now? Because you are snowboarding. So, I mean, in the start, generally, I mean, it's just ride fast, ride smooth, get out in front. You know, I think there's there's some things I tell myself that I'm not ready to share with the world to, to be able to pull with that extra little oomph or anger, if you will. Um but there was a time where a lot of what I was going through and dealing with, um, or a lot of my success was kind of um, somewhat out of spite, just to prove the world that I was better than people had had thought of me, and that I was I was capable of of doing something great. And it was it was literally like I'll show them every poll. It was I'll show them, you know, and that can kind of be a bit of a distraction. So I've kind of changed the tune a little bit. Um, but realistically, I mean, I try to have fun. I try to have fun, especially at, at, at a race, because if I'm having fun, um, I'm, I'm racing well. And I, I've kind of changed the tune of like, I've got a cool life, man. I really do. And, and I'm lucky to be alive. You know, I, I bled to death three separate times. You know, the third time I was gone for three minutes, I shouldn't be here having this conversation, let alone, be a professional snowboarder so this is post getting your foot broken that you bled today. this was while i was in the hospital so they cut a top uh, a hole in the top of my foot to do the reconstructive surgery and emergency fasciotomy they drained 96 fluid ounces of blood out of my foot um originally so that hole anytime i'd sit up past like a 45 degree angle all the blood would go rushing under my foot and come geysering out of that hole yeah and it, it feels about that look on your face. Oh, no. <laughs> Extremely yeah. painful. And it might be why I lost circulation in my foot in the first place. Um, so that happened three different times. And, you know, the first time they got me back pretty quick with defibrillator. Second time, relatively quick um, defibrillator. And the third time, CPR and defibrillator. And they were able to get, you know, it's like in the movies when you're like, okay, they're going to give them a, you know, give them one more shot. They did. Um, luckily, and they got a faint pulse. And then from that point on, I was stuck on my back. Um, and then a few weeks later, I lost circulation in my foot. About a month down the road, they're like, hey, we need to decide what we're going to do with this. Um, so my tune these days when I'm snowboarding is like, yeah, I want to win. I'm super competitive. But uh, I'm also there snowboarding with my friends. Some of these people I consider my family. You know, I've watched every single person start their career on the World Cup circuit and Noram and in, in Europa Cup circuit at this point. I've watched every single athlete start their career. And and I take that in almost every race. I take a moment. I'm just like, this is so cool. Like, 
look at where we are look at where you started and look at where you are man and like even on a bad day when I'm not performing well yeah I'm disappointed if I don't end up on the podium or whatever but uh you know I always have to remember like I'm out there snowboarding with my friends and a second family and like I take a point of pride in that. Like I take a point, there's a point of pride for me to know that I've seen these people start and excel and be some of my biggest competitors now. And it's joy, it's love, you know. Is it a second life in some ways? I mean, it's kind of like you you died in some ways. You you died and were brought back. I mean, this is the definition of the Phoenix in some ways, right? Sure. And you get to do it again. Yeah. With the knowledge that you had from the previous life, right? Yeah. And I mean, so it was a humbling experience for sure. I mean, I I was pretty successful in the drilling world. I was a well driller, drilled for water. And, um, you know, they were grooming me to take this company over. And they wanted the plan was to hand the keys to the kingdom by the age of 30. Um, And and to, that was my path. And there were some instances where I was very arrogant with life in general. I mean, as somewhat careless. I mean, the accident was somewhat of a careless accident as well, to be honest. I mean, my load was a little bit heavy and I was actually just loading trailers. But there were days where you'd have to climb, you know, a 70 or 100 foot derrick and wrench on things. And it was much more convenient to just climb up there without a lineman's belt, you know, a safety harness than it was to harness, climb, harness, climb, you know, just to fix a bolt or something. Um, And looking back on it, I mean, those things would sway in the wind and you'd be sitting up there just wrenching away, like not even thinking about it. And um, I I would say there was a point where I was a little, little careless for sure. And there was a point where I didn't really care if I, what happened to me. Um, And I don't know. I, I definitely it humbled me in ways that I can't really describe because I, I it made me want to make the most out of every minute. You know, um, it made me, you know, try to seize the day regardless of what I'm doing. You know, even when I'm hanging out with my son, like uh, we might not even leave the house, but we're seizing every moment. We're working on things. We're, you know, we're excuse me, we're, I'm pushing him to, to learn things alphabetically or, uh, his arithmetics or, or we're building stuff and it's always something, right. I'm always, and I'm, I get a lot out of that. I get these little moments of just pride where it's like, it is a second lease on life. And then of course, add the snowboard world. And, you know, I live in an amazing place and I have an amazing wife. You know, we have our other business and all these other things. And, um, I'm just, it is, it's that, it's that second, second gift. It's, you know, the first gift is life in and of itself. And the second one is, well, you're back, you know, um, you get to see it in a different light, which, which I didn't see it at that age when all that happened before that happened, I was, I didn't see it as, as life as a gift. I saw life as kind of a burden, um, you know, and, maybe this is what I needed to kind of, uh, kind of wise me up a bit to really appreciate what, what, uh, mother earth is and what it has to offer and what, what a gift it really is to be, um, be alive, you know? 
It sounds like in some ways that this is the third stage for you that you've gone from, you know, the carefree, possibly careless young guy to recovering, you know, coming back from the dead to now bringing life into this world and and being a husband and being a father and sharing that knowledge. But then your son also, he became a star during the coverage of the games. I mean, how, how do you compete with this? You thought you were the big man in the house and that, you might be getting upstaged by, by the little guy. Oh, I'm constantly getting upstaged by this kid. He is a little rock star for sure. And it's so funny, like, man, this kid, he's got more talent in his pinky than I think I'll ever have. You know, I mean, he was walking pretty young. The kid pedals a bike at three and a half. He was jumping his strider bike at the pro BMX park. Like for us, it's just damage control with this kid because he's, like I said, he's got more talent than I, than I could have ever hoped to have or pass along to anyone. Um, you know, and I'll do credit to his mom. who was a career gymnast and, you know, in her own right, she was a national champion in gymnastics. So I'm guessing a lot of the genes came from her, especially the balance stuff. Oh, but uh, snowboarding, I mean, the kid's on snowboard, he's on a snowboard already, and he can turn in both directions, he can stop it, I mean, he's gonna start skiing pretty soon, um, and he's definitely going to probably upstage me, he's very competitive, I've realized, uh, and I just try to not be competitive with him, and be like, look, dude, I'm not, I'm not the guy you got to compete against, there's going to be plenty of that, like, Let's just hang, man. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's it's so cool to see a little human kind of, I guess, follow these little things that you do. Um, I mean, and it makes sense that he's, he's a rock star on a bike. We've been taking him to the bike park since he was born. It's something my wife and I have always loved to do is go up to the bike park over at Snowmass and um, he's just a little infant and we'd pass him off, you know, I'd go take a lap and then come down and take him and go take a lap. And so he's been around bikes his whole life, um, which if he ends up being a professional mountain biker or something, that is all good with us. I'm totally ready to spend uh, time in warm weather in cool places. I'm happy with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the pit crew. Yeah, totally. I'll work on bikes all day. I have no problem with it. I'm good with my hands. Um, but he, he really is just like the joy of our life. And I do, I think I would definitely be lost without him. I think my wife would be too. He's just, he's a little rock star. He's great personality and lover boy. And he just, you know, he loves everybody and smart, super smart and super coordinated, which and adventurous. So, but like I said, damage control with this kid. We put a full face helmet on him, you know, pad him up as best we can. But even then, he's a little bit of a, a little bit of a purist. He's like, I don't want those elbow pads. I don't want knee pads. I'm like, dude, your your knees are all scraped up already. Let's preserve what we've got. And he's like, okay. But he's definitely a purist, extreme sports kid already. And how old is he? Three and a half. Three and a half. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's but I can't. Here's the thing: either you deal with a kid that's melting down, or you just pat him up. And so we just pat him up because it's easier to let a kid drop drop in on on a pump track or something. You just kind of, as a parent, you're like, 
okay, here we go kind of thing. Better get the camera ready um, than to have a kid that's screaming in your face and really, really upset that you didn't let him drop in with the other kids. I would imagine that being a parent, because you do extreme sports and your wife did extreme sports, you know, I mean, and probably continues to, you're talking about the biking and everything, but like looking at what gymnasts do, like that's, it looks so beautiful, Mm -hmm. but if it goes wrong, it can go really, really wrong. But I imagine for the two of you, even though you have this personal experience watching your child has to be way harder because you have you have no control you're just there as support right that's just it what what i do on snowboard on a snowboard everyone's like that's psycho that's crazy and like you know you you ski downhill you know what it's like it's a calculated risk every movement every motion every turn everything is calculated and you're in control but what you just said is it's just that like I watch this kid and I'm like I'm not in control and I'm just like I hope it works out for the best because he's he's gonna do it either way you know um I just have no way of like turning the handlebars for him you know I just hope that he's watched and learned enough to be able to do it but I mean he's pretty talented I've seen the kid ride through some things that I was like oh no this is gonna be bad and then he rides out and I'm like okay well that worked and each time he gets a little better and a little better. And so he's figuring out, you know, his own calculations and that kind of thing. And I think that's part of it is we all have to take that risk in order to to learn how to do it properly and how to gauge, so to speak. But taking that risk, especially as a parent, the taking the risk part is being willing to watch him crash, being willing to watch him fail. It, that's got to be way harder than failing or crashing yourself. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, when your kid crashes and then they cry, you feel really bad for him. And I'm like, oh, I know how that feels. Like, I don't like having a skin knee. You definitely wouldn't either. Um, but that's part of parenting is like, I, I'm a firm believer in letting kids experience life. And it's why we live where we live is, is, you know, we believe in and love the great outdoors. And, and, you know, it's, it's, I think there's, there's a level of, of um, toughness that comes with all of that. I was an outdoor kid. Um, I had to learn from my own experiences and, can't say it's always going to go right for him, but uh, I would rather him experience life to the fullest and and take his own risks as he gets older and know how to handle those and how to bounce back than, um, you know, being a kid that sits indoors and plays video games all day and has no idea how to handle life. I think there's a lot of life lessons that comes with crashes and how to, like I said, bounce back. It's a, it's a good skill to have, especially in this day and age. Life isn't friendly. It's not easy. <laughs> No, it's not friendly, but it's that's that's one of those things that makes more sense in some ways in hindsight than it does in foresight. Like knowing, okay, the kid's going to crash. He's going to hurt himself. He's going to come back. That is part of learning. You know, the the mental part of it, the you, you know, you're thinking, okay, I understand how this is supposed to go, but at the same time, just it shows an amazing amount of strength to be able to say, yes, 
go go ahead and and go crash because you have to in order to go forward well if they if they don't crash now they're going to later it's just a matter of it it's not a matter of if but when right regardless if you're talking metaphorically or physically crashing something um and are they going to be able to have the the mental capacity to be able to bounce back and if so how long is that going to take and i think all these these little experiences come with that and it is it's very hard to have restraint as a parent to not run over there and be like no 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 you know it's more like you run over there and go no 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 try it this way you know like or maybe let's drop from halfway up first you know um you try to control it as much as you can. Like I said, it's damage control. You try to control the little pieces as much as you can, knowing that there's not a whole lot that's in your control. Right. And that there are necessary steps along the way to personal strength, to success, and to the confidence. You know, so often people talk about they're successful because they're confident. Well, the question that comes from that is why are you confident? And what it sounds like is you are building a confident child. Sure hope so. I sure hope so. He seems to be, from what I can tell, there's no lack of confidence from this child. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I think we should we should finish on this now. We actually had had a direct message during this from Lori Frischer, who said that, uh, thank you for living your life with authenticity. And I think that that seems like the most appropriate ending to this. So... So thank you for living your life with authenticity and continuing to move forward and hopefully completing your set, getting that gold medal to complete your set in uh, Cortina. So thank you, Keith. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends, tell your friends and, you know, share it. We will also make this into a traditional podcast. We would love for you to subscribe then you will get an alert when we have a podcast and you know that it's been great stuff so like us follow us subscribe and please we will bring you another great episode next week so thank you all thank you keith and we'll we'll see you next time yeah.